0: Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first. All others second. This is Ask
1: Noah.
2: Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show. Starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode. The Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. It is a good evening. How was your week?
0: Uh, you know what? Par for the course. Just uh, we had a, a wicked windstorm uh, just after Thursday and Thursday night, 100 mile an hour winds tearing up trees all over the place and that sort of stuff. So still digging out from all of that kind of storm, at least on my property. Lots of people have recovered, but there's still lots of trees downed all over the place. So it's just been, you know, it's been normal. Get up, go to work, then uh, come home,
2: do more work, go to bed. So I have to ask when a, when a storm rips through Steve's neighborhood and you go outside, okay, there's trees all over the place or down trees all over the place and bushes and things I got to clean up. Do you go out there and is it like, is it fun to get outdoors and do things? Or are you one of the, are you one of the people that's like, I'm a nerd. This is outside and it's scary and I want to go back inside and work on computers and automation and things.
0: I grew up in the county. Um, this stuff is old hot for me.
2: This is no no issues. OK, so this is just back to the uh, back to the grind, as it were. Yep. All right. Well, let's jump into feedback before we do. I want to make uh, a, a, a plea, as it were. The show is driven by feedback. So there's a couple of ways that you can participate. The best way to participate is join us live by going to AskNoahShow.com, 6 p.m. Central on Tuesday nights. so you can join us in our interactive mumble room or you can join us inside of our chat room at GeekLab.Ninja. You can participate there. You can type your question out. You can join a voice chat. However it is you want to participate, the voice chat or the phone calls are obvious are honestly the best. If you call us at 866 at 280 uh that will help – I'm sorry – eight five five four five zero six six two four Gave give out alta speeds number um that is the best way to participate because it allows us to have an interactive conversations. Can't count the number of times that Steve and I have been going through, uh, email or feedback and going, well, if we knew what he was saying, if we knew what she was asking, we would say X, Y, or Z. So giving us a call at 855-450-6624 allows us to have that conversation real time and get you the answer that you need. If that doesn't work, or if you prefer to do it over the computer, then you can jump in mumble or you can jump in our Jitsi room. Um, but as a last measure, you can always send in emails and you can do that by sending an email to live at asnoashow.com. You can do that anytime throughout the week. And then what we do is we categorize all of those emails and the ones that are one-off answers. We read them on the air. and But what we're working towards is trying to categorize when a bunch of people write in and say, hey, I'm looking for the best way to, I don't know, set up a backup server um or the uh <laughs> Jellyfin on a pie. Didn't think we were going to get as much traction out of that, but it turns out there's a large interest in the community. Steve and I didn't know that. So when you write in and tell us, "Hey, I'm looking to run Jellyfin on a Pi 4 or what's the best way to run something uh, Jellyfin on a Pi or how do I get Jellyfin running, you know, on on my TV?" um we can take all of those emails together go through either do some research, do some testing, poke people into the community, bring somebody on if necessary, and then come back and present that as an answer. But for that process to work, we have to have your participation. So please run not walk to your nearest computer and safely write an email to live at asnohow.com. Let us know how we can help or how we can serve you. Let's get into and the, if, if you' okay if
0: you're going to write a dissertation, that's fine. I, I read every email that comes into the inbox. However, we might not put the giant email on the air if we can't summarize it. So if you want your question read on the air and kind of answered by us, um, try to be concise. If you want to get it included in uh, a larger topic discussion, feel free. Then I'll cherry pick bits and pieces to kind of summarize what it is that you're uh, trying to express to the community. So just think about, do I want this answered immediately or or with some speed, or is it part of a larger discussion? And that should guide the length of your email.
2: Absolutely. I see people doing this in geeklab.ninjas. I'll make a plug for this as well. We have our questions bot, linuxdelta.com His nickname is Marlon. He keeps track of everything for us. And one of the things that Marlon has been doing is begging people in the chat room for learning topic suggestions. So Kind of as an aside to what we were just talking about, obviously, that's how we structure the feedback. would like to address your feedback. But in addition to that, we're looking for some very specific curated topics, large topics that we can really dig in, uh, prepare in advance, and then come and give you a, a solid presentation. And right now, we're collecting topics to do that. So if you'd like to suggest those, you can send them into live at AskNoahShow.com. You can give us a call at 855-450-NOAH, or you can ping Marlon in the Geek Lab and just tell Marlon, hey, this is... A good topic for learning. I would like to do that. All of those remain available to you. Uh, Well, without further ado, let's dig into some feedback. Our first email comes in from Simon. Simon writes and says, hi, Noah and Steve. First off, thanks for asking my my question last week. It was definitely informative and exactly what I was looking for. I wanted to dive a little bit more into the ZFS and ButterFS issue. Steve mentioned that the advantage of ZFS compression, and I'm impressed. Are there advantages to using either file system ZFS or btreeFS over another on a home server? And what do you think about Canonical's push in recent years to concisely support root on ZFS? Also, have you had any Red Hat certifications changed in light of COVID? I remember seeing that you could take exams virtually, which defeated one of the big selling points of the exams. Have either you taken a red hat certification in recent years and this is it still worth now that the business justification and social cred it was in previous years? Thanks for the show, Simon. So um, I guess let's uh, let, let, let's answer in order here. Um Thoughts on advantages to file systems ZFS or B3FS over another for a home server system?
0: Well, I mean, you get snapshots. My biggest one was compression, to be honest with you. Um, I started doing it to compress my Steam library, which actually works fairly well, um, as well as some other types of, of things like virtual machine images because of the, the kind of speed advantages we talked about last time. Um, in terms of uh, B3FS, or ZFS, your advantage is one versus the other. It really breaks down to, do you want one that's built into the kernel? Are you trying to do like a RAID 5 style implementation or uh, a RAID Z implementation would be the equivalent or not? If you are, then you know, take a, a good look into B3FS and where it stands with the data corruption and some of the problems it's had. I would say that between the two, I like ZFS because it still works with the standard Unix tooling, where, where B3FS sometimes will misreport its size because it uses uh, some different facilities. I know that those tools are, are starting to catch up, but it, depending on your distro and how far behind they are or, or uh, how up-to-date various packages are, some of the standard toolings like DF and DU and things like that may have a little bit harder time figuring out uh, B3FS in terms of like a standard um, ext 4 or xfs to me i don't really know why you would use those anymore except for file systems you don't really are you're not managing for the data so for for a root file system i don't really care <clears throat> pardon me as long as it's a journaling file system so i don't really think that that makes that big of a difference in terms of canonical's push to to support root on ZFS, that has a lot to do with being able to roll back and and do, I'm going to say quasi transactional updates. So uh, Red Hat's side of the camp has gone down the idea of <clears throat> like core OS or transactional updates where essentially you're using RPM OS tree and it essentially ships down, I'm going to say a firmware image. It's not so all of the hyper-technical people, I know it's not a firmware image, but it's a good way to think about it. It pushes down an image, and it comes all as a package, and it's meant as kind of read-only. Read and if there's a problem, it, it manages one or more uh, root partitions at the same time so that you can just roll, like you can switch between the various images that you have in case of trouble. So, I mean, there is some advantage to to that. If you're using those, those style file system, it doesn't matter whether you're... ZFS or B3FS. What do you think,
2: Noah? This isn't um, – I recognize that this is somewhat of an esoteric uh, a use case, but a large thing that drives my decision on what I'm going to do at home is what I'm doing at work. And that isn't I, – I get that that doesn't apply to everyone, but I think you actually made a, a somewhat of an offhanded comment about this at one time too, saying if I can't multi-utilize a skill, then it becomes less – appealing for me to acquire a new skill or technology, right? And so when I think about what, where I want to store my data or what I want to do with it, well, if I'm with ZFS, I can do everything from order, uh, order a used Dell Optiplex and just set up ZFS on on Linux because with OpenZFS, the code base is primarily in Linux anyway. I can scale that then to TrueNAS or I can go buy a... Uh, you know, a sixty thousand dollar server from forty five drives and send ZFS there with ZFS re- replication. When I go to sit down in front of a client and they say, "Well, now I want to store this data set or I want to sync this data set," that that same tooling, that same technology, that same skill set, those that same comfortability um, and command line interface is all going to translate one for one. So, to me, if if I got to the point where every time I was turning around. I ran into b I think that's probably a fine way to go. Right now, as it stands, it seems like every time I turn around, I'm bumping into ZFS. And so I I have so much comfortability with it, and I trust it so much because I've not ever been bit by it. It's just, it's it's like I'm in a really happy home camp, and I have a hard, it's hard for me to, conv- it'd be hard for somebody to convince me to leave my happy home camp.
0: So I guess, I I like to put my toe in different technologies. So uh, a user, yes, last week was talking about how they were using B3FS. um, And I think Linux Ninja also. Um, I have two machines here at home, the the comm center that that, uh, you got for us. And my laptop that I reinstalled recently are both running B3FS for the compression on root. But in both cases, I'm not actually trying to preserve that data. Like my laptop, I treat as ephemeral, like... Anything that's important gets synced via Spider Oak and Nextcloud. So if I lose the laptop or if the hard drive blows up, like it's really not that big of a deal. It's a little of an inconvenience to reinstall it. And for the comm center, it's like essentially a touch screen that is meant to get on the internet and that's its sole purpose in life. So I do, I do kind of dabble with, with B3FS. Um, and I think there's some interesting things that it brings, but. Going back to what you said, Noah, it's just not – I run into clients that run ZFS. I have not run into anybody running FS.
2: Yeah. Yet. I mean, with Facebook and it becoming a default in the Red Hat circle, I'm sure that's probably coming, right?
0: It's actually not default in in Red Hat. So it's in Fedora, but you can't do it on RHEL. You can't do it on Rel. You cannot do it on RHEL. The really? Btrfs is not the the butterfs tools or Btrfs tools are not available yet. They may that may be coming, but they're definitely not there right now.
2: Hmm. So there you have it. Um, advantages, disadvantages of it. I, I would I would tell you. So it it's interesting. As in the past, I would say I don't know, maybe six months. I've been really digging into Ansible and automation, and one of my favorite phrases that I've come across. Is treat your servers like cattle, not pets, and it that is a modern way of what I used to say. I hate magic scripts. I would just, it used to drive me nuts. I worked for a, a company, and you'd walk in, and there would be this server, and everybody was like practically afraid to touch it or do anything. Like, oh, we don't know how it's set up. So so and so set that up before he left, and we got to do this. We do this magical incantation, then that stays up, and so we wouldn't want to wouldn't want to mess with it because it could go down. Like that is not way to to run a production environment at all. It drives me nuts. And so one of the things that's nice about Ansible is it is not just accepted. It's best practice to consistently blow away whatever you're working on, set it up from scratch, because if you're running the playbook against it, it's going to check to see what's done, what isn't done, and and then go back and do it. Um, When you take that same methodology and apply it across the board to technology, I no longer care about my laptop. It's nothing special. It's just a thing, a conduit to access data. And if I can trust the data pool on the back end and I trust that that's backed up and I trust that it's somewhere secure and I trust that it's accessible to me, then I no longer really care about the conduit in which I use to get there. And so for me, if I'm building those things, the things that I'm going to rely on, the things that I'm going to be able to count on, that no matter what I do with the conduit, that this back end thing is going to be a static, it's going to be consistent, it's going to be there, that's 100% of the time for me. ZFS. So on to his second question, the reality of Red Hat certification. So, Steve, I have said in the past, basically since day one of this program, that I have the utmost respect for Red Hat exams for a couple of reasons. One, they are some of the most realistic exams that I've ever taken. I remember doing my Cisco certification and my RHCSA side by side. And I remember sitting in my Cisco exam class with a piece of transparency, an Expo marker and a Kleenex and like writing out subnets because like 60 of the 90 questions are subnetting questions, uh, writing out a a subnet and trying to calculate it out and then frantically trying to erase it with my little – Kleenex. And of course, there's no liquid. So you're using, you know, your spit and then eventually the Kleenex becomes soaked and then that's not helpful. So then you're using the palm of your hand. And it, it, it was it was a test in something, but I don't know how much technical things I, I really got or proved from taking that test. Fast forward a few months later, I'm taking my RHCSA and I'm sitting inside of a lab with an actual red hat box and they give me a list of 20 some whatever tasks do these things, make the machine reboot an instructor comes and runs a check against all of those things. Did you do it? Yes or no. And you either pass or you don't pass. I remember the clear light bulb that went off in my head. Should I ever have somebody sitting in my office that presents me with Cisco certifications? Understand that you know. And it obviously, it gets more difficult as you go up the ladder. But entry level Cisco certifications understand that they probably understanding they understand subnetting fairly well and are excellent with the dry erase marker and a Kleenex. If somebody comes in and says, I have the entry level Red Hat certification, they're probably pretty well suited to uh, administrate a Red Hat box, at least a, a, in a fairly basic way. They understand the lay of the land when it comes to server administration. So I suspect that is what Simon is referencing here when he said um, one of the big points of the exam being defeated is if the exam is being conducted virtually, because obviously the presumption here is that it's being done not sitting in front of an actual Red Hat box, but over the Internet, I somewhat suspect that even though the exam is being conducted virtually, it's still being done on a Red Hat box. That Red Hat box may not just be in front of the student. Um, But do you have any recent experience with Red Hat uh, certifications or exams? And what are your thoughts on them? I absolutely do. And I can even tell
0: you how the process works because that's not NDA. That's just stuff you need to know if you're going to do it. So first of all, um, you have to run the operating system that that is on the training website, like full stop. So there is no worry about... They do a lot to make sure that there's no cheating. You have to have... In my case, I had to have three webcams pointing at me from different angles. Uh, You have to show that you don't have any other computers plugged in, like... At all, you're only allowed to use one external monitor and, and periodically they stop and at, they stop the exam and ask you to show the entire room. So you walk around the room with the webcam, you show onto your desk, you show that the door is closed. They watch to make sure that you're not reading aloud. They, um, make sure that you're not how ha- you can't use wireless keyboard and mouse because that's part, part of that is, well, how do I know that you're typing in the machine itself? Oh, well, um, so there, there's like a whole list of rules that they've they've really thought out. Um, it is annoying. It is not ideal, but the the point is that it still it feels exactly like a Red Hat kiosk. You get the same feeling because they give you basically the I'm going to call it the kiosk OS. I don't know what exactly it is. It's based on Fedora, as far as I understand it. You stick it in your machine, um, and away you go, essentially, and I can't remember whether you actually have to carve off a partition whether it runs on a USB drive. I I don't remember because I did it probably about 5 months ago now. But it's there. I don't think that one of the biggest selling points is defeated. It's the same thing as if you were going to a testing center. So in in Toronto, the testing center was a box in a room, but you still had a bunch of virtual machines. And so as f- like as far as I knew, I might have might as well been like uh, shelled into somewhere else because I have no idea what the kiosk machine does. Like, are the VMs running locally? Are they running somewhere else? I have no idea how that works. So as far as that's concerned, it's still the same kind of interface that you had before. Uh, they also offer a subsection of the exams as opposed to all of them. So you can't do all of them online for various reasons. So they're already hamstrung by what kind of things they can offer based on... The equipment that's available and the proctors and all of the rest of that.
2: Are you able and willing to share what uh, your most recent exam was? And
0: I did an open shift exam. Um, I don't remember which one it was called, to be honest with you. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um, I do them just kind of out of hey, this one's available and I need to keep my certs up somewhat for for my own self professionally. Um, and I didn't I didn't find it that hard, but the the issue is you have to know how to take Red Hat exams. And I don't just mean Red Hat exams. The it's crucial that you do time management. That's what the issue is. Yeah. So I was chatting with someone today who did not pass their exam because they ran out of time. And that's that's just the reality of it. It's not they're not difficult if you prioritize properly. If you let yourself get stuck on something, you'll you'll fail because all of the questions you could have answered Uh, you you don't get around to. So the very first thing that I do is I tackle all of the ones that I consider easy and I go for it Mm. and I literally will skip all like, sometimes there are six or eight questions that I skip in a row and then I go back to them and I just keep cycling through based on how easy I think it is to approach those questions for me. And that's the way that you have to approach it or else you get stuck on like, so in one of the Ansible exams, one of one of the objectives, depending on your exam, is to create a dynamic inventory. And if you let yourself get stuck on, oh, man, I can't remember how to do the dynamic inventory, and you beat yourself against the wall against that, you're not going to get anywhere else for any of
2: the other stuff because, you know, that that's just the way it works. Test-taking strategy. But here's the thing. Even with that strategy applied, what I'm hearing, Steve, is that you walk out of that exam... Proving the things that you can do to the machine or the tasks that you can accomplish. So as an employer, I had the, I literally had this conversation earlier this morning with a, a new teammate of ours. And he was asking, you know, we have a meeting scheduled and um, he's on a track to become a, a full-time employee. And so, um, you know, we're guiding him through that process. And we have like basically a little template that says you should get have about 20 hours of this and about 20 hours of that and this, that and the other. And he is judiciously going through and saying, uh, you know, uh, OK, system administration, I need 20 hours of system administration. He's marking off what tickets he's working on and how many hours he's getting and stuff like that. And I told him today at the end of the day, I don't really care. How many hours you can put a little check mark next? That's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to get hands on experience so that you can do the thing. To me, where the real value of Red Hat certifications come in is when you walk in the door and sit down in my office and say, I'm an RHCSA or I'm an RHCE. I know without having without any other discussion with you that you have a basic understanding of how a red hat uh, enterprise Linux box works and how to make some basic changes on it to administrate that system. so when I send you out to work at a at a client environment and you sit down in in a production environment you 're going to know what the heck you're doing at least to some degree and of course there's going to be newer versions of stuff and there's going to be custom configuration and custom deployments and stuff like that but the basic tools are there and the basic understanding is there. To me, that is where the real value of uh, of Red Hat exams are. And if I'm, again, comparing that to the Cisco one, they do a lot of emulated technology. And so some of the commands aren't available in the emulated Cisco router. That isn't realistic. Um, the, and there's oftentimes more than one way to skin a cat. And Red Hat, I would go so far as to say, encourages you to achieve the end result essentially however you want to achieve the end result as long as you meet their checklist and and they can mark those things off so no i don't think there's i would agree with steve i don't think there's any diminished uh return on investment for the way that red hat is doing it and i'm glad to see that there's still there's still a push to have you do it on an actual linux box they're just what turning your own computer into a linux box it sounds like
0: yep like i said you have to download their the Kiosk OS or whatever, and away you go. It has a vert manager on it, or at least it did when I was there. So it had vert manager on it, and you know it fired up VMs. But I, like I said, I don't know where those VMs lived mm. necessarily. Um, it didn't really matter.
2: Sure. Our second email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, Noah and team, thanks for the great show. I listen to you guys every week. I have two questions. First, I was unable to attend your Matrix Community event night due to a prior engagement. Would it be possible for you to post any links or resources to that event in the next episode? Secondly, I've been contemplating my Road Warrior setup for a lot of upcoming international travel. I currently use a YubiKey and Tails OS on a USB flash drive. However, after playing a bit with the uh, the RPi0, it occurred to me that I could set up a relatively secure mobile hotspot with all of the credentials, WireGuard, and security that I need to quote-unquote phone home or serve securely at various Wi-Fi hotspots or hotels. This way, I would only need to set up one device and not all of my other devices along with my family would remain untouched and relatively secure. I did some experimentation and hosted a local NFS Samba share on the device that I can watch media during flights and share media with all of my various devices at once. It works flawlessly. My idea would be to entail creating a known image file that I can write to the micro SD card and if I believe uh, something was compromised or altered in any way whatsoever I need to make updates along the way looking for feedback on what you think of this sort of setup. I know that you'll have improvements that I didn't think of. Thank you in advance Kevin. So uh, in order uh, yeah, uh, so, the, so to kind of briefly recap the community night Was kind of born out of the concept that we can only answer so many questions on the air. And there are oftentimes that problems that they're not, they're not fun to solve on the air. They would be boring to listen to in a lot of ways. Um, But people still have realistic problems. And so digging through those individual environment setups and individual uh, variables, and then stepping through with a solution also, oh, by the way, having a bunch of people around that have a variety of expertise is a super helpful thing. And so Essentially, what we've been doing is one Thursday a month, uh, we all hang out and mumble and do stuff. And so the last community night, what we did was walked through running an Ansible playbook. Uh, Against a server and the Ansible playbook was about setting up a matrix infrastructure. So if you wanted to get started with matrix and wanted to host your own server and said, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do these nine or 10 or 12 things that you'd have to have a server running to run matrix. Well, no problem. Do you know your email address? Do you know what domain you want to use and can you generate random passwords? And if the answer to those three questions are yes, then you fill out a file with about 10. You answer these 10 questions and uh, you run the playbook against the, whatever server you want and out will come a matrix system. And so we did that. A lot of people got uh, matrix set up. I did record it, um, but it's not it wasn't wasn't made to be you know published it wasn't meant to be it, I wasn't didn't have you know my presentation cap on I was just a geek hanging out with other geeks so I can send you a copy of it and you'd be welcome to, uh, to to watch through it really what it comes down to is clone the the uh, matrix ansible deploy and run it uh, fill out the variables file and run it against a server and then there's just a lot of geeking and nerding out in between there but um, to the extent that that's helps helps you absolutely as far as your travel idea, so I have something similar in that I have a small little travel router, so wherever the internet source is, internet source comes in, all devices connect to the internet source, so that part I think I can get behind 100%. Where I kind of went like, wow, is you're looking at streaming content, NFS or Samba shares, like in travel, uh, like in route, Potentially, that seems like that could be extremely cool or an entire train wreck. Um, I've never considered doing that during a flight. Uh, not that it wouldn't necessarily be possible, but I just that's a lot of infrastructure to try to spin up in an airplane. Steve, thoughts?
0: Uh, no. <laughs>
2: that's, I, that's okay, That's my thoughts. <laughs> it could be cool, though, right?
0: I, it would definitely be a neat geek project, but that would be one of those things where um, there's too many points of failure that are possible. And when you're talking about entertaining yourself on a plane, maybe part of the entertainment is troubleshooting with limited access to Internet or installation processes. Uh, that's not my idea of a good time. So I, I'm more likely to be like, oh, it
2: broke. Well, I have a book. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more of a laptop guy than a book guy, but I, I can see see both ways 855-450-NOAH that's the number to join us 855-450-6624 the email live at com. Tony joins us from Canada hey Tony welcome to the show
1: hi uh, hi, Noah hi Steve thanks for taking my call you bet um, I have a question for you guys um, so I have uh, two Proxmox servers that I'm currently using and uh, I was hoping to eventually get some sort of high availability I know I do need to get a third one Um uh, to do true or to do high availability. So they, you know, the whole, like the voting system, the I think it's called Quorum or something. Uh, but my my question was more on shared storage. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering what options do I have? So I, uh, if I have like, like my, I'm trying to get my head around, like uh, if I have three servers, uh maybe I would do say two sans. Um, and I, I like, I'm not looking for too much space. It's actually not a lot of storage space that I need. Um, and I'm wondering, like, you know, should I go with SSDs because I don't need a lot of storage space? Mm. Are there enterprise SSDs? Should I go with free NAS and Appliance? So I know it's a lot of questions uh, all at once, but
2: yeah, for sure. So okay, let's start with, uh, I guess, let's start with sh- shared storage. Steve, what would be your thoughts if you wanted uh, shared storage for a Proxmox cluster?
0: Well, since he called in, let's let's do the whole. Uh, you know, he's a client. Um, the very first thing that we think about is what are we trying to achieve? Like you've come at me with a an objective, but not actually what you're trying to achieve. You've told me I want to use technology, but not what you're actually trying to get from it. So how you design your shared storage really is a function of what are you doing with it?
1: Right, so, so I, I have some virtual machines that I want, like if I had a hardware failure on one of my hypervisors, I'd like them to be able to to be brought up and spun up on another, on another one of my hypervisors. And right. do and so you then, uh, make that, make the, sorry, make the SAN uh, redundant. So that way I don't have, you know, one SAN as my single point of failure.
0: Is this a home lab or are you doing this in a small business where, like, what is the environment you're doing this in? It's in a small business. Yeah. So small business. Then you absolutely want to have some redundancy then. Um, there's a couple of things you could do. Um, you could get... Well, first of all, you have to consider what your back-end inf- um, networking is going to be, right? Can't really talk storage if you don't have decent networking. Like if you slammed you know, 20 uh, enterprise SSDs in there and then you're trying to do all of this over a one gig network, uh, that's not really going to fly. So when you're talking about setting this up for even a small business, you need to think about... Uh, how do how do i separate my traffic and what are my actual storage needs so you said we've got some vms how many are there and you know do you approximately know how big they are
1: yeah so it's uh it's about two v- two vms that are critical is is actually the ones that i need to make sure are are always up uh as far as the actual like how much storage probably, i think it's about 150 gigs so by always up, um,
0: let let's dissect that just a little bit. Do you mean no downtime, or do you mean because like when you're transferring the VM hosting from one to the other, um, and you're talking about possibly SAN replication because you're talking about being able to make sure that if a SAN goes down, you know the VM's not down. So. Are you talking about like a little bit of downtime is okay, but not hours? Or are you talking about like no, this needs to be up immediately? Like what are what are we talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like if if you like if it was like uh, I don't know, thirty seconds a minute of downtime, that's totally livable, right? Like it. Uh, if I drop some packets, I'm I'm totally cool with it uh, as long as it you know it kind of comes up right away. Because the solution that I've been using up until now has been I got it's kind of the. The call called the poor man's uh, redundancy is the is I have my uh, my VMs replicating from or the my uh, ZFS uh, data set replicating to another uh, Proxmox box and then I you know in the event that one dies I you know connect in spit, you know turn on the next VM or the you know the, the the one that I have sitting there dormant that connects to the same virtual machine disk image and I'm up and running but that requires intervention. So I'm trying to just get something that's uh, a bit better, but, you know, not necessarily, you know, without dropping a packet.
0: Are you guys considering, um, like, a Fiverr back-end for the the VM transport?
1: Uh, we we could. I mean, it it, it could be, right? Like, uh, you know, we don't have – it's not too much I, I Like, I don't even know how to calculate my IOPS, to be honest with you, but it's not too much um, – uh, like there's not too much reading going, uh, reading and writing going on. So what I would
0: here's what I would counsel a, if you were my small business uh, client, what I would say is if you want two SANs, then you're going to need at least four fiber links. So each SAN has to have two links because um, even if you're using something like uh, NAS or something like that, the when you're exporting over the SAN, it will want two links. You, you can get away with one, but there'll be a bunch of errors saying, you know, I don't have redundant links and all the rest of that. And on top of that, you'll need to make sure that your admin traffic between, and I'm going to call it admin, I just mean traffic between the two sands to make sure that the replication is happening. You're going to want to separate, separate that because you don't want that going out over the same network. Um, you can do this. So I do this in my home lab with 10 gigabit network and that's more than sufficient and and should be okay but you're going to have you know two vms at 300 gigs total you'll have a little bit of of time where there's going to be some transfer from one SAN to the other if it needs to um but it, it should be okay so it, it'll depend on what your budget is so i'm going to stop and let noah kind of jump in
2: no i i no, you're doing great. Uh, so if if we if we break down, what are his next? What are his next steps? Where would he go? So he has a desire of, of what he wants to set up. Is he knows roughly what kind of technology he wants to implement, but where does he go from here? What are the next steps?
0: So you got to nail down your networking. Your networking completely uh, defines this project because. If you're doing shared storage, it's all about the networking and how reliable that is and how the communication happens between your two SAN hosts. Um, so the first thing is to decide what kind of networking you're gonna get and what what protocols you're gonna do and whether you think you might have to expand this in the future. Uh, for example, 10 gigs is, is kind of considered the minimum uh, reasonable link speed. You can do it over one gig, don't get me wrong. But as a general rule, for if you're doing this for a business, 10 gig is kind of like the minimum, and then you scale that up to whatever it is you need to in the future. So you think about, you know, are my needs ever going to grow in the next three to five years? And if they are, maybe fiber is the way to go. If you're really strapped for a budget, you could go with cheap fiber now um, or 10 gig. If if you see that copper is is advantageous for you, so you have to sort around what your network. Is going to be before you consider, um, anything else. In terms of the software, I, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't do something like TrueNAS unless, um, you have some specific storage needs. Like for, for things like Ceph or Gluster, they can help by, by exporting various types of storage. And while TrueNAS does iSCSI and, uh, NFS and Samba, the other ones do like block storage and and um, ugh, object storage and and things like that where that might be
1: advantageous to you in the future. So uh, yeah, that would be my thoughts. So, so so question for you guys then. So when you say like the, the networking part, do I do I need a, an actual switch or can I just connect? Uh, so let's say I got three boxes. I would need. Uh, I guess are you, are you saying like connect them each physically from? Like each box to each SAN, each hypervisor to each SAN, or are you thinking well, about putting a, uh, that I should put switches in between?
0: So the correct answer. So there's there's the cheap answer that will work, and then there's the correct answer. The correct answer is to go with switches. The cheap answer is to do what I did and just get, you know, a big enough uh, four-port ten-gig NIC so that my redundant links will plug directly from my SAN into my two VM hosts. Um, because I only have two, but that doesn't scale if you add a third one or a fourth one or a fifth one.
1: Right.
2: Although, hey, Steve, could he he not start by having everything direct connected and then, okay, I want to go add a fourth one or a fifth one. Well, now I'll go buy a switch because I need to interconnect all of these boxes.
0: You could. There, There will be some... But like I said, in a business setup, you want to have two connections from each SAN going outward, which means that you're going to have to have at least four ports uh, per host because the SAN should have redundant links. And so uh, you should have two per SAN. And he said he was thinking about having two SANs. So you're talking about four fiber channels or whatever, just just for that. And then the, the Vietnam hosts themselves need to communicate somehow. And they also have to communicate to the wider world. And as do the Sands, the Sands have to, you have to be able to administer them somehow. Mm. So you're talking at least three connections at a bare minimum, probably four just for the sands because one one connection has to be sand to sand one connection should be how you administer and two are the
2: redundant links for the storage going out to the endpoints Tony do you have a, a working environment right now or is this all being set up from scratch
1: I have a working environment uh, that we've been but we're we're looking at potentially upgrading the hard, the hypervisor hardware which is kind of making me start to think you know, Maybe we could, uh, you know, make it a little bit, you know, not only do we need a little bit more processing power, yeah. but maybe it's uh, a good time to, you know, do the SAN upgrade.
2: Yeah, the The reason I ask is my mind, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to this conversation unfold, my mind kind of starts to wonder, would you be better off starting small and then scaling up? But it, it sounds like you have something started, so this is your opportunity to, like, if we're going to do it, let's do it right.
1: Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if we have to go with switches and we have to incur that cost, like we're, I guess, you know, it, it might be the, the better route. And if we're, because you're saying, like, you want, or you recommend, you guys recommend two redundant links from the SAN to the hypervisors. So, if I'm doing it direct attached, I would need, if I, and if I have three hypervisors, I would probably need six connections then from the SANs, right? Because I'd have to go from each SAN, two connections to each... To each, uh, hypervisor,
0: right? And that's why it doesn't scale, right? So if you're trying to, if you ever want to add additional hypervisors, that method doesn't scale. In, in my case, I knew that the maximum I was going to have was three hosts. And so, you know, I'm not even doing redundant links. I'm, I'm doing single links and just, you know, waving away the error mess, or the warning messages that, that the, uh, the SAN software Screams
1: at me for. And, and FreeNAS would do that clustering. Does it? Does it kind of do like a live clustering, or do, is it kind of active standby, where, you know, you're using one and it just kind of like on a quote-unquote cron job replicates itself over to the other box.
0: That's a good question. No, do you know so, the answer? To
2: yeah. That? So if you're set, so yeah. So in general, if you have a ZFS replication set up, it's going to follow a schedule. So it's going to say, "Hey, I want this data pool or to exist on both of these servers, and here is the time I want these uh, these to go over." Now you can you can have it take snapshot as often as you want, right? So you can set that schedule up to have snapshots to happen every minute, every 10 minutes, every hour. One thing that you have to be careful, and um, we weren't careful in one case, and it kind of bit us, is you have to be cognizant of what else is the business doing during that time? Because if one of those replication tasks kick off during a time when they're trying to use the internet for other things, and you've not rate-limited your uh, your replication, you're going to tank your own internet connection.
1: Right, right. Okay. And, uh, I mean, as far as uh, going with something like uh, spinning rust versus SSDs, um, I mean, I know SSDs are better, and because my requirements for space are are fairly low, would you recommend just sticking with SSDs? or Do you
2: prioritize speed or reliability more? Well, I guess, hey, hold on. I guess that's a, that's an invalid question, because if we're going with, if you're setting up three hypervisors, that's where your reliability is going to come from. So, yeah, I probably would go with SSDs. What do you think, Steve?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I think, well, it depends on whether you're cost sensitive or not. The, the SSDs are going to be more expensive, um, and you'll also want to have um, at least four of them, just because of the way that the software is going to write to the Right to the disk. I would do. I wouldn't do two, and you should. You should rarely do an odd number of drives. Mm. So myself, I went with SSDs. I went with 250 gig SSDs, and I have eight of them um, slammed into my uh, TrueNAS server. But it depends on what your storage needs are and how much how much disk that you're willing to sacrifice for things like if you're going to add parity disk, um, and additionally, you'll have to think about. If you're going to go with SSDs and this is a business, the enterprise SSDs are more expensive, but they they definitely bring value in terms of IOPS and stuff like that. I went with just regular off-the-shelf ones because, you know, if my VMs go away, it's it's my home lab um, and I have a pretty solid backup strategy. So I don't really... It'd be an inconvenience for me to lose... I'd have to lose three drives before it would impact me, but still... Um, you have to make that kind of own calculus to decide. Whereas with the spinning rust, that stuff will go pretty much until it dies, as opposed to having bad sectors or or something like that. As a general rule, the, the enterprise um, SAS drives are pretty phenomenal.
2: Linux Ninja in the chat room adds, enterprise SSDs are worth it compared to the expected life expectancy of a consumer SSD. I would add to that you're going to pay for those. Um, yes. Enterprise <laughs> SSDs are stupid expensive. If you want the most extreme example of that that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, Google uh, the Intel Optane drives and look at what they're Oof. going for.
0: Yeah, those are ri- ridiculously expensive.
2: Mm. But but the okay. flip side of that is if you need the performance, sometimes nothing else will do. Mm-hmm. That's true.
1: Right and, and uh, one last question for you guys as far as hardware do you guys recommend with going like with true nas hardware or you know buying let's say like a Dell server that has multiple slots and what do you recommend
2: are you for sure going to run uh, uh, I'm sorry you told me what, what was the the uh, you're going procmox right proxmox
1: if yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cause I've used I've used other ones before like I've used kVM on its own and and there were some issues with uh, I found with VLANing, uh, you know, put, giving different, you know, tagging VLANs uh, for different VMs. So okay, if
2: if you're if you're if you're married to Proxmox, I wouldn't say there's a huge advantage uh, in in one particular hardware vendor or another. I would look at what other proxmox users are using and what they have good success with um dell has a phenomenal vm host uh, lineup so if you give them a call so one of my favorite expressions um one of our our, uh, our installers says the dell r540 has something for everyone um, they start at like 1200 dollars and they go up to like fifteen sixteen thousand dollars, and i mean just pick your budget and pick what you want and the dell r540 will do it for you um They, If you talk to, call Dell up and just say, hey, here's what I'm looking at doing, they'll be able to guide you through buying a piece of hardware that's going to work well. Where I think uh, IX Systems is worth their money is if you're going to do something with TrueNAS and you want something that has been tested and certified for uh, VMware stuff. But if you're not going down that route, that's not worth the money.
0: I went with um, HP... uh, the model number is DL380, and they they have, you know, Gen 8, Gen 9, Gen 10. Uh, the reason why I did those is because those are two U servers that I I found to be the most cost effective. I looked at I looked at Dell's and other things. I found these to be the most cost effective, especially for the number of disks that I could potentially cram in them. So uh, I've I've had so disclaimer I have had multiple servers from ix systems i've i've had dells i've had now i've got hps and i've built my own so i i have a wide experience and i don't have anything bad to say about either the dells or the or ix i just found that the the hpe dl 380s were just the the right bang for the buck for me
2: do you have anything that you said this was like out of the park the best experience i've had
0: Hmm. I would say the Dells were pretty good. Well, okay, it depends. If you're talking about customer service, the the IX guys were were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking about remote manageability, I found that that their servers lagged a little bit behind the Dells, which mm. were which I, I would still class above the HPEs. But they get me done.
2: The, the Idrac. So I'll just yeah. a, a quick plug from my my friends over at Dell. They we had we bought a, a brand new vHost for a client. Got there on a Friday. This is the middle of BFE Wisconsin, right? Like, there's no one here. And get to the client site. We plug the thing in. Server's dead. Won't boot up. Call Dell. Hey, bought this brand new server. It's dead. They flew a guy out. He came. He was there by Saturday. Had the new part, new motherboard. Took the entire server apart. Went through. Figured out it was actually the motherboard. Had a suitcase full of parts with him put a new motherboard in, put the thing back together and had it back up and running in like four hours within 24 hours of us purchasing the server uh, and and getting on site and realizing it was bad and letting Dell know about it. So I don't I I, I don't have enough time or enough room to explain how highly I think of Dell's customer service and the way that they take care of their business clients. Um, When you have a problem, they come running Uh, and that as an IT provider is, is, is worth tons. Uh, I'll give that plug there, but, uh, that go, all of that largely goes out the window. If you're buying used, which you might very well consider doing if you want to balance your budget a little bit with getting, uh, you know, you could buy some of these used HP servers or used Dell servers or use Supermicro, which is really what I X is. And, uh, you, if if you're not concerned about the warranty or the service aspect of it, you could save quite a few dollars by just getting something, uh, you know, gently used.
1: Yeah, no, that that's great, uh, guys. I really, really, really appreciate all the advice. Uh, you know, thank you so much.
2: You bet. Uh, will you do me a favor, Tony? Give us a call back when you as this project progresses and let us know how it works out. We'd love to hear.
1: Definitely. I will. Thank you.
2: Yeah. We appreciate the time. 855 450 noah It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. That is how you join the program. Become a part of the program. Our fourth email, or excuse me, our third email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, So I've been having issues with both Ethernet and USB printing, mostly with Linux. I'm on Ubuntu 2204, and I have a brother HL2370DW. I'd li- I like the printer model. And I think the second one I've had, both have some issues. Sometimes spool jobs will not print until I restart the printer. Both are on USB or Ethernet. Any ideas? So here's the deal. We have supported Brother Printers for kiosks for years now in hotels. And I've also run into these problems. Steve, do you have any experience with Brother Printers? And if so, what's the answer here? Well,
0: I don't know that I have an exact answer, but yes. So I've also had Brother Printers for the last 12 years. What I have found, particularly Ubuntu, is a big pain in the butt because so my wife's laptop runs Ubuntu Mate and uh, with our printer, it kept adding the printer back every time I removed <laughs> it. It's like, I'm being helpful. I'm going to put it back. And the problem is, is that the drivers that come with Ubuntu, they don't work. They just don't do anything. And so I actually had to go get the tarball from the website and, and manually install it, which is fine and works. Except that this stupid laptop keeps adding the dummy printer back in and she always has to try and print twice because she never knows which one it is because it won't <laughs> stay gone. Uh, but yeah, the the solution for us has always been find the Tarball on the website. Uh, this is the third model of Brother that I've had to do this from. I I find the Tarball that works eventually and then I store it. I put it on my NAS and then I grab it whenever I have to do a reinstall or anything like that. Now, haven't had haven't had any issues uh between running Arch and running Ubuntu and Fedora here with the tarball, so that has been the way we've solved it with the last three uh, brother printers and
2: to be clear, the ghost printer stays gone when you do it that way.
0: Nope, okay uh, not on Ubuntu. It just keeps adding it back. It's like, hey, I found a printer,
2: like but you already have a printer. And I've deleted you. Go away. Well, maybe you can rename the printer, Use This One. But in either event, that is the most reliable way that you can probably get a brother printer to work. I'm going to give a small plug for uh, for HP printers because they work natively on Linux every time with their HP JetDirect software. Hey, the music in our ears, again, means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for another episode. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live at AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.